Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Firm Network. On War. Friction and Inertia. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we're going to be talking about friction and inertia in war. But before we get to that, I wanted to address this weird static issue that's been happening ever since we got this computer back from our tech guys. It's had this weird crackle to it, and I'm sure you guys have noticed it too, or if you haven't, I've drawn attention to it now, and you'll never be able to not hear it. But we're looking into it. Uh, might be something to do with cables, might be something to do with mics. Um, doing a process of kind of looking at those things to figure out how we can get rid of that pop crackle in the background. And again, if it's just because my headphones are up really high and you guys can't hear it, that's cool. That's cool. Just listen to it nice and low. <laughs> uh, speaking of weird technical issues, I have been thrust into the new age. My editor slash wife has been insisting for a long time that I get a TikTok, and I've been talking with some other folks in the industry, and apparently that's one of the new things to do for advertising. I have the Facebook page. I was pushed into getting a Instagram. Newsflash, I don't like Instagram. I, I really only use it for advertising the show. And now, of course, there's got to be a TikTok, too. So, but we got to keep up with the times. Is what Klauswitz was talking about. You got to keep adaptable. We got to keep up with the the new technologies, even if we came from the woods, and it doesn't really make sense to us. That doesn't matter. We have to roll with the times and adapt. So that's what I'm doing. Um, hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll have that up and running. It's it'll be at like Art of War Gaming or something along those lines. Oh, next episode I'll certainly bring it up once it's all finalized. But I guess. Look to the future, there will be a Art of Wargaming TikTok. Well, let's go to some wargaming things that I've been experiencing recently. First off, um, to anybody in my local realm who's listening, and to everybody who's listening elsewhere, we had a really, really positive season this year. Like, it was not expected with, with the stresses of, you know, the, everything going on with the, the globe at the moment, with the pandemic... Just, there's a lot of stresses in the world right now. A lot of things can go wrong, and, and it doesn't take much for people to be in a bad mood or, or be taking things out on other folks. So imagine my surprise at getting to the end of a season and having practices that were incredibly positive. I don't remember a single drama this entire season. Everybody just showed up happy to see each other. So I just want to say thank you, Stygia. That, that was fantastic. I mean, you made my 10 years of EP way too easy. And, and I mean, it's also, a, a, I, I'm not surprised. Let's just say that I'm not surprised. Stygia has usually been a pretty well-behaved place. We're rowdy. We're rowdy, but the most, the majority of us get along. And so 
I think we all just brought our best foot forward this summer and tried to make it a place where everybody could chill and be happy and feel safe. So good on you guys. And I hope everybody else has been having a good season too. I, I know here in the Northern Hemisphere, the outdoor foam fighting, uh, well, any of the outdoor fighting stuff is starting to wrap up a little bit because it starts to get really painful. I mean, especially here in the in the North. I don't know about y'all down in California and Florida. I bet you have, you know, 365 day practices going on. In which case, I'm envious because there's six months out of the year where... And now, and now before you're sitting there judging, before you're sitting there being like, oh, come on, you could fight outside, like whatever. Yeah, yeah, you can. You don't stay cold that long because you're moving around, right? Uh, so your cardio gets up and the heat gets into your blood. Well, sure, that part is easy. The hard part is that these foam weapons that we use turn to stone, basically, if you drop below 50 degrees. And really, if you're under 40 degrees, they are no longer safe in the same way that we normally use them. I had my wrist broken one year because it, it got hit just right with one of these stony weapons, something that would have just smarted at any other time, but in this particular case, broke it. So... I stopped fighting outside around that time, and there's always a lot of injuries outside. So if we can find an indoor space, we still practice, but from here on out, it'll be a few people here and there and in other folks' garages with space heaters on. <laughs> so that's how we do it up here in Montana. Uh, and of course, being a practice, I noticed some things that I, I need, desperately need. I still have a red and a blue, which is to say a large sword and a small sword, that I've been using for years. And the the shield breaking sword is a brick. I mean, it is just a massive thing, very thick, and it breaks guards like I've talked about. And uh, the smaller sword I have is really intended to be used accompanying a shield or accompanying another sword. So by itself, it's a little bit clumsy. Some of my buddies let me try out some of this new tech that's coming out. My goodness, it was so <laughs> light. that I could, I could use this big shield breaking weapon with one arm fairly easily. I mean, it's ungainly. You're going to, you're going to telegraph your shots like nothing else, but it's still pretty cool. And I, I got to use the max length, uh, what's called a blue sword, which is a non-shield breaking sword. And, ugh, it was delicious. So I, I know where my next several paychecks are going, is going toward, uh, some new stuff for fighting. At least until December, when the new Gene Steeler Codex comes out. I am stoked. Oh, I've been seeing all sorts of salt on the internet regarding this. I mean, I feel like the community has been clamoring for this, and now that it's coming out, and now that we have a new character who's got some really sweet abilities, I hear people just whining about it. It's like, come on, guys. This is sweet. I'm excited for it anyways. I'll be excited enough for everybody else, because... Yeah, it looks like a pretty sweet codex. I love the saboteur that we're getting. Uh, yeah, just super excited for it. So big plans for the future. Yeah, getting some new stuff, hanging out with some folks. I hope everybody is having a good time on the other end of this. I know we're in stressful times. I know that everything is kind of weird right now, but I hope that you and yours are safe and as happy as we can be. But sorry for getting heavy on you. We're going to move into our first section now, which is overcoming friction.
most difficult part of any campaign or war is often not the battles fought within it, but overcoming the natural friction that comes with a large enterprise, uh, like moving an army from one place to another, keeping them organized, keeping them fed, keeping them happy. There's a lot of friction, inertia, to overcome, to get things moving. In this section, Clausewitz says that everything in war is very simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. And this kind of threw me for a loop for a second. And then as I was reading through, I started to get an idea of what he meant. War is very simple. You're going that way. You, there's a battle. You're going to fight it. You've got your objectives. It's very simple. But each of those things that you want to do is very difficult. Because when we're trying to accomplish something, it's not just the end result that we have to contend with or that we have to move towards. It's also dealing with these little petty things, which when they pile up can be a big deal. So by petty things, I mean just, just smaller things that affect a unit or an individual. So let's think about ourselves for a second, okay? Let's say that we're, we're at a fighting tournament or at an outdoor event. And these, there are petty things that will pile up. Let's say that we didn't get a very good breakfast and we're a little on the hungry side. Well, let's say now that we're a little dehydrated, we have a little bit of a headache too. Maybe didn't get a good night's sleep because whoever your neighbor was was making a bunch of noise or maybe there was some sort of weather issue that kept us awake. And so each of these little things and of themselves is not necessarily a huge problem. If, if you're just dealing with a little bit of thirst, get a glass of water, we're fine. If we're just dealing with a little bit of hunger, you know, we get, we get something to eat and we're doing okay. Even lack of sleep can be mitigated if you've got a lot of these other things that are going for you. But as these petty, petty things pile up on an individual, it becomes harder and harder to overcome this natural inertia, break this friction that is any sort of, of prolonged combat or wargaming or anything along those lines. And of course, if we think about this on an individual level, it can make things difficult, but even more so when we expand that to be an entire unit, entire battalion, entire team worth of people who are having to deal with their own little petty issues, their own little petty problems. And I don't mean petty as in like, it's bad, I'm not trying to dismiss it. But there are these little things, just the little things that are piling up. And so we have to be careful not to bring too much of our personal stuff to the table, to, to impose that upon other people and bring them down as well. I, I've seen it happen. You have a bad attitude within a unit and suddenly everything starts to fall apart. You know, it spreads, it spreads like wildfire. And before too long, you've got discord. That's, you know, if it isn't addressed and if it isn't taken care of. But even something petty like that can spread. One individual can ruin the morale of an entire unit. Think about 40K is the same way. You know, you have, might have units that are, you know, individuals within a unit that have a high leadership. But as people are pinged off or as certain uh, buffs or debuffs are put upon them that drop that leadership, that's a morale uh, downer. You know, there's plenty of stuff in 40K that lowers leadership. We can think of these as like some of the petty things that are piling up as well. Making it difficult to concentrate. Making our focus on the field not quite what it needs to be.
because activity in any sort of war or war gaming is movement in a resistant medium. Everything we do has a, a natural resistance. It's not just moving easily through the air. If we think about war as swimming, right? There's always that resistance. We have to learn to deal with the fact that we're not quite able to move our limbs as fast as we want to. We have to account for the fact that there is water resisting our motion. If we're trying to teach somebody how to swim, you know, if we're teaching them in the reality, in the pool, we can show them, yes, this is how it feels. This is how you maintain buoyancy. There's a lot of different things that one can be taught in the moment, in the place. But teaching swimming on dry land, there's only so much you can impart. There's only so much that we can actually teach somebody if we're not in the action itself. And this is one of the ways to, to kind of get used to this resistant medium, is to just experience it. Not in a classroom setting, but on the field or at the table. It is extremely difficult to take this sort of petty friction into account when we're planning. We can account for some of it. You know, we can assume that people will become fatigued. We can assume that uh, we ourselves, if we're at a tournament, are going to need certain pick-me-ups throughout the day, whether that may be caffeine or food or water or whatever the case may be. But there's things that we're just not going to be able to plan for. Like I had said before, your neighbor, whether it be in a hotel room or, or in a tent, might be really loud. And that might disrupt your sleep. That's not something you necessarily planned for. We didn't go to an event being like, you know what? Somebody is going to disrupt my sleep and I need to be prepared for this. Well, not so much. Your sleep is just disrupted. So there's always going to be little things that we cannot plan for. And any plan that we make needs to allow for a certain degree of leeway. There's only so much precision that we're going to actually achieve. So we have to take that into account when we're doing our plans. One of the big issues with friction, with this inertia in war and war gaming, is the bodily exertion that goes into it. Now again, this is slightly less for intellectual wargaming like 40k, because we're in a nice, well-heated, internal, controlled area, and the bodily exertion is more a matter of being able to stay on our feet, making sure that we have practiced, you know, being on our feet for 10, 12 hours at a time. When I was prepping for tournaments before the plague hit, I was making sure that I had back-to-back -back games lined up so that I would be on my feet for, you know, 10 hours, and I might do that for a couple of days just to start conditioning myself. Because even that petty exertion can be rather significant if we're not used to it. But even more so if we're dealing with something that's in the actual field, that's in the outdoors. Because we have to prepare for, prepare for a lot more than just being on our feet, which is also a consideration. But we have to prepare for the cold. Because even in the warmest places, it can get really darn cold especially if it's raining. We also have to prepare for the heat. You never know when there's going to be a heat wave that strikes. We're never going to know when we're going to be in the blazing direct sunlight and need to account for that. We have to prepare for thirst. Make sure that we've got water in an easy, accessible area. We have to prepare for hunger. But we got to eat, right? And then we have to prepare for fatigue, the eventual tiring out of the body that comes no matter how well prepared we are. 
we need to make sure that there's a contingency to allow for the fact that we will become fatigued. And to be best prepared for all of these things, it is good to have a strong body and a strong mind or spirit. And to have a strong body is, is pretty self-explanatory. And I'm not necessarily meaning that we're going to the gym and bulking up every single day. That's, that's absolutely permissible. The, the fellow I'm going to have on later, he's a, a very fit man, and it absolutely helps him. But when we're talking about a strong body, it's, it can also be a matter of, can we climb? I know that may seem strange, climbing or swimming, but these are actually things we use in fighting quite a bit. And some of the motions translate directly over. Of course, any sort of long walking or long running or hiking gets us prepared for having a lot of cardio or aerobic exercise that we need to perform. One of the things that we like to do uh, years ago when we went on hikes is to go in full battle rattle. All of our armor. We're hiking up the side of a mountain. And it was great because when you're on the field, nah, that armor weighs nothing. We were just running around in it because we had gotten used to hauling it up a mountain and back. So th these are a lot of different ways to have a strong body and to make sure that we are physically prepared for what we're going to do. Having a strong mind or spirit, now that's, that's a little bit more tricky. How do we find our center? How do we motivate ourselves? How do we keep focused? Well, this is going to be different for every person. I mean, you personally are going to have to figure out what your stride is. For me, like I've said before, it's a matter of listening to the right music before I go. It's a matter of, of keeping a good mindset, of maintaining my focus on the field and not allowing myself to be distracted by what I'm having for dinner or you know what family event is coming up or anything along those lines. My focus is on the field. And then, of course, there's the prepping that goes into it. For something like Warhammer, that would be there too. Prepping your mind would be making sure that you've learned your rules inside and out, that we can recite our ballistic skills and our movements and our wounds just off the top of our head because it makes things so much easier. And then to be prepared in spirit is, again, that's really very, very personal. However, we get prepared. So I would say if you don't know what these things are in yourself, that maybe we be mindful so that we can replicate it each time. And there's always going to be additional exertions on any sort of commander or staff because they have a lot more going on than just a regular foot soldier would. For instance, when I was in basic training, I was the student first sergeant, and I was in charge of the four different platoons who all had their stu student sergeants. And yeah, it was hard. It was hard work, because I was the last one to bed, first one awake, last one in the chow hall, first one out of the chow hall. And so there was an additional exertion. When we were on our hikes, I was constantly going back and forth between the front of the formation and the back of the formation which means that I walked considerably further than anybody else in that formation did. So this needs to be prepared for. I mean, again, if we're not necessarily in charge of anything, there's a certain level of body exertion that is to be prepared for. But if we are in charge, we're actually doing our jobs, then that needs to be taken into account as well. Because this bodily exertion all prepares us for the danger on the field. That's why we're there, right? the mock combat that we take part in, the, the battle of wills that takes place on the table. There's the danger. And how we handle that danger really comes to bear with our preconceived notion of whether we're attracted to it or repulsed by it. 
I know some people who joined the field because it was a part of the community they wanted to fit in, but they were absolutely terrified of being there. And there's a lot of folks that have an attraction to it. A lot of us, I would say, do. We come into Warhammer or something like Belagarth or the SCA, and we want to be there. There's an attraction. But even if we have that initial attraction, there can be a little repulsing when we witness first blood, as it were, when we, when we meet our first action. Because like field fighting is fine in theory and it's cool to watch, but you really don't know how you're going to handle it until you take that first really hard kidney wrap or somebody hits you with their shield so hard that you go to the ground, that there's some intense experience on the field that really tests our resolve. A similar thing can happen in, in something like Warhammer, where we go to our first tournament and we experience our first tournament-level play, which is something completely different than most of us will experience in our smaller clubs. So this first blood can shock us and can and interfere with our ability to perform Another thing that interferes with our ability to perform is compassion. Now, in Clausewitz, when he was saying this, it was a matter of, you know, actual compassion for killing people. And I think that's a whole different level than what we're talking about. But what I'm talking about is compassion in the way of, like, you've got a friend. Because we all have friends. You know, we have a friend on the other side of the field. Somebody that we have been very fond of. Maybe somebody that brought us into it or we came into the sport with. And... When we square up against them, we don't want to fight them as hard. There's this softening of our posture, this softening of our approach, and that interferes with our ability to perform on the field. When I first started off, I cannot tell you how many times I got killed because I wasn't willing to go all out on a friend or because somebody I thought was attractive was on the other side and I didn't want to ruin my chances, as it were, by hitting them in the way that the sport dictates. And very quickly I began to realize that this was a great way to die. That by having these conflicting emotions, by having this compassion for my enemy, that I was hindering my ability to win. So now, I mean, part of the mindset that I have on the field now is that I don't see friends or, or even enemies, people that I don't like. I don't see any of that. I see allies and I see targets. And if you're on my team, then we're pals, at least for the extent of that battle. I don't care what kind of beef we have on the other side of the field. I don't care what other kind of drama is going on. If you are on my team, then we are allies. And it doesn't matter how much I like you. If, if you're my favorite person in the world, my best friend, my girlfriend, my wife, whatever, if you're on the other side of the field from me, then you are my enemy. And I'm going to kill you. Not in real life, obviously. But in terms of the game... That's what we're there, we're there to do. And so this is something to really keep in mind. And a lot of veteran fighters and a lot of veteran players will already know this, not to pull their punches. I mean, I, for 40K, it's the same way. When I first started getting buddies into this and I began, well, I, I trounced them because I knew the mechanics a little bit better. I was familiar with my army and I was just whooping people. And there was always, I didn't want to make feel bad. So I didn't, I, I'm not a gloater. But there's always the chance of, you know, putting somebody off, making them not want to play the game because you, you hit them too hard. And so not necessarily destroying somebody outright, but having compassion for somebody for really pulling the, the winning punch, this does not serve us. So between these two things, 
being able to bear the stress of our first blood and get over the idea of compassion for the enemy, we can better face the danger and the frictions that come with the dangers on the field. One of the other big causes of friction and the hardest thing to overcome, inertia speaking, is information. Truth is the first casualty of war. And that's not because everybody's lying all the time, even though that absolutely takes place. You have you know, spies that are either delivering false or, or misleading information, scouts that don't really understand what they're looking at. There's a lot of different reasons why truth goes by the wayside. Because knowledge can never be completely correct. When we're dealing uh, with on the field, again, we can know our opponent to a certain degree. We can know what, they, what patterns they typically do, their, their general style of fighting. When we're looking across the table, we can know how an army basically works. We can know per perhaps a particular play player's way of using that army. But we can never completely know what they're going to do. We can't read minds. And so we have to take into account with this information friction that any of the knowledge we do have is not entirely correct. Even the knowledge that we're getting firsthand right then and there, it often is contradictory. And it's always constantly changing with the circumstances. So this makes information one of the hardest things to get a handle on in war and one of the greatest causes of friction. Because bad information can cause a whole cycle, this lethal cycle of, of negative thought that kind of saps our ability to be able to perform to the level that we want to on the field or at the table. And this cycle is the one of indecision, doubt, and regret. So let's say we make a decision, we make a, a snap judgment on the field, and it gets us killed in a horrible fashion, or it gets us absolutely trounced at the table. Well, at that point, we might start second-guessing because of this loss or because of this uh, even injury to our pride, we might start second guessing. And at that point, we reach indecision because we already have the regret. We regret our actions. We regret our loss. We regret the, the kill that we were delivered. And that regret then becomes indecision because we doubt ourselves. We doubt our ability to make good decisions, and so the regret becomes doubt, the doubt becomes indecision, and those indecisions then lead to more regrets. And so we have to avoid this. We have to completely avoid this cycle. That doesn't mean we don't think back on our actions. We have to learn. We have to be analyzing ourselves and be critical to a degree of what we're doing so that we can properly learn, so we can properly reach the next level. But this needn't go so far as to completely make us question how we do things, completely, completely make us question our ability on the field or at the table. Being decisive is still very important. Making a slightly bad or slightly not as good decision quickly is better than taking forever to make a perfect decision. War moves fast. War gaming moves fast. We can't be expected to make absolutely perfect decisions, absolutely perfect plans. But the best thing we can do is make sure we're prepared to follow through with, with whatever decision we make and not hem and haw back and forth. The nice thing for us is we get back up. We can set our models back up. We're not actually dead. We're not actually losing the entire nation's army. We're playing games. And so if we fall down, we can get back up and learn how to not fall down that way again. 
but don't get in your own head. <laughs> That's the message here. So what do we do with this? Knowledge is never completely correct, and even the knowledge we have is constantly changing. So how do we get ahead of that? Well, as Clausewitz has been saying this whole time, we have to use the law of probabilities. What is going to make the most sense? And this is, is pretty darn mathematical when it comes to something like Warhammer 40k, or any other sort of dice tabletop game. Because we know our odds. We know the probability of our dudes hitting and delivering wounds. We know the abilities of different folks against, like if I've got a, a shooting army, I know my probabilities are very low if I come to blows with a melee army. And so looking at these different disparages in power, we can make a lot of really good calls, even without knowing what our opponent is going to do. These probabilities also come into play when you're, we're dealing something like field fighting. You know, if we've got the numbers, if we've got the better gear, if we've got players with better skill, we can play out these probabilities as well. Perhaps not to the same degree of mathematical accuracy, but any veteran fighter who's developed that coup d'el is, is pretty able to see that. I, on Sunday, when I was at practice, we were looking at the way our lineups were and putting, because we were outnumbered. One of the teams I was on, we were outnumbered by at least two to one. And so... Playing this law of probabilities was very important to us. We had already lost the numbers part of this. And so then it became a matter of how do we attain local numeric superiority and use our abilities to their, to their best bet. And we were able to do that most of the time. Uh, one of the fights, Toto, the guy I'm going to have on in the next section, he was awesome. He's not usually a leader. He's a very good fighter. He's a very friendly fellow, but he, he's in his own unit because <laughs> uh, he likes working by himself. And so a few times he took charge and made sure that the numbers on that side counted. And that was brilliant. Playing those probabilities to their advantage. And this is how we kind of deal with that, that information friction, right? So there's some qualities that make us much better at dealing with any sort of friction that we come across. And these qualities, we can have any number of these. And the ones we don't have, we can work towards. So these aren't necessarily intrinsic qualities. It's not like the genius for war. You know, you have it or you don't. These qualities we're looking for, anybody can have them or develop them, right? The first one is enthusiasm. Are we happy to be there? Are we motivated? Are we ready to take the field, take to the board, and give it our best effort? Enthusiasm. But on the other side as well, we need stoicism. We can't let those small losses, those little dings to our plan, mess up our overall headspace. In the same mind, we can't become so exultant over our victories that we fail to see mistakes, that we fail to see how we're going to lose in the future or how that small victory needs to be capitalized on to actually make the battle go well. So that stoicism keeps us in the right headspace too. Natural bravery is also, of course, a boon. And this is something that you're either have or you don't. That's, that's why it's called natural. But obviously somebody who's got a more bold approach to the field or to the table is going to have a certain advantage because that boldness means we're kind of overcoming that indecision, right? But on that same line, and this is something anybody can have, is great ambition. Even if we're not naturally brave, we can also have that ambition that drives us forward. Do we want to succeed? at what we're doing. How much do we want to succeed? How far do we want to go? These are things we can set for ourselves. 
So with great ambition, that is a fantastic quality to bring with what, to whatever we're doing. One of the best things we can have is familiarity. Are we familiar with our army? Are we familiar with different terrain types? Are we familiar with different weapon types? Are we familiar with the way that different units move and work and how these individuals are, how certain mechanics work within our games? This familiarity is going to help us deal with these, these frictions well to an overwhelming degree. Kind of a combination of enthusiasm and stoicism, a buoyant disposition is also extremely useful. And kind of that idea of staunchness and firmness that we were discussing before. Are we able to weather those punches? Are we able to kind of move where we need to go? If we're, if we're pulled under momentarily, can we spring back to the surface? A buoyant disposition. And then, of course, the ability to make mature judgments. Not compromised by emotion. Not compromised by external factors like, is my boyfriend slash girlfriend slash partner over there? And making an emotional decision based on that. No, the mature judgment within the context of whatever game we are playing is necessary. The concluding remarks that Clausewitz had for this section mostly have to do with what he calls the most effective mean of overcoming friction, far better than any of those other qualities that we have mentioned, though it's related to familiarity, and that is habit. It does not matter what rank we are. If we're a noob to whatever we're doing, a neophyte, or whether or not we're a commander, an old vet grizzled around the ears, habit is the best thing we can do for overcoming friction. Are we fighting regularly? Are we practicing our games regularly? These are the ways that we can really overcome the friction. And it needs to be done in a larger sense as well, because quote-unquote camps of maneuver or peacetime exercises, and let's call this uh, our fights within our smaller club, or even our realm. These are nice. They're, they're good for giving us the basics. They're good for giving us the foundation that we're going to build from. But for that to be really effective, we have to have seen actual combat, gone to an event, gone to a tournament. There are things that we learn, habits that we can form with that knowledge that really doesn't exist otherwise. It can't really be taught outside of practical experience. Because new people, if we're new to things, they always assume that any sort of fatigue or mistake that occurs to them or occurs at any point along the process is a fault of the whole. Not recognizing that the, the whole may not be flawed, an individual might be flawed, or perhaps the habits involved might be flawed. The concept may be just fine. You know, Necrons are a great army. If they're played correctly, they can really devastate. But if somebody is new to the army, there's some little hiccups, some little rule things that might make them think, oh, well, this fault right here means that the whole of the Necron army is flawed. I don't want to play them. And that's, that's, not, that's not the way of it. We have to look for the ways to win with what we have. One of the best ways we can do this, even if we have been in peacetime too long, is to make sure that we are importing and or training officers who are habituated to war. If we're not going to events regularly, then having an influx of people who have been. That was one of the greatest uh, growing moments for Stygia, is when folks started going to events en masse. It wasn't just a few people going, it was the majority of the realm. And so when they came back, they were able to really teach the folks who hadn't gone to an event a lot more than we would have learned just fighting amongst ourselves. 
And so by importing them, by training them, we were able to build the realm up, even for people who hadn't actually seen that sort of combat before. So I guess my concluding remarks are that I absolutely agree with Clausewitz here, that overcoming this friction and getting our inertia going to the point that we need it to, to achieve victory is hard. It can be harder than the actual battle itself, dealing with these frictions, whether they're the petty ex exertions that kind of pile up, what we need to do with our bodies, the flawed nature of information. These are all very important things for us to actually have a successful fight, for us to actually enjoy our time and have a chance at victory. But as I've said, we have Toto coming on in this next section, and he is a perfect example of a person who knows how to overcome these frictions to achieve victory. Joining me today to discuss these ideas of friction and how they apply to the different aspects of war and wargaming is somebody who you all know pretty well. I've talked about him ad nauseum on this show, and uh, he's, he's been on before as well, uh, my friend Toto. Toto, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Mark. How are you doing today? Well, you know, I'm pleased to have you on the show, so that's uh, it, it's a good day. Well, the feeling's mutual. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks again. So today we're going to be talking about this idea of friction. And first, in dealing with friction, is coming to the field with the right mindset. And one of the, the two of the big concepts when we're dealing with this mindset are enthusiasm and stoicism. Now these two things seem to be contradictory, but you embody both of them and do rather well. I, I would say they are actually mutually inclusive. Uh, they, they need each other for the other one to, to, to survive, genuinely. Uh, because without enthusiasm waxes and wanes, right? Uh, there are peaks where you are, are very motivated, where you are feeling that push to do things. You are, you are enthused when something is new to you. But in order to continue on any stretch of, uh, uh, in any path, any sort of activity, you also need to have the stoicism within you to keep going through the lows after you suffer a bad defeat from a game you're trying to uh, play competitively, be it Warhammer, Pelagarth, fighting games, what, what have you. Um, I think that's, that's, that's my personal philosophy, that I, I, I could not be enthusiastic without knowing that I will make it through those tough losses, and I could not make it through those tough losses without knowing that I would have that enjoyment again. That's a solid point, because again, the enthusiasm gets you to the field, and it's like the stoicism helps you survive whatever consequences may come of it. Exactly. I could take that. Especially when you combine it with those, those other qualities that Clausewitz mentioned, you know, uh, natural bravery, and that, like, I've got, you know, I've got my notes right here. Natural bravery, great ambition, long familiarity, basically your career listed right here. Uh, because, you know, again, that natural bravery absolutely plays into it as well. And, and that's just something you kind of have. Like, I, you're too sweet to me. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's something you can be taught. You know, either you're, like, long familiarity, that's something that any of us can get. It can, in a large place, take the place of that uh, natural bravery. But I think there's a huge... Uh, value to that and also a little bit of a drawback don't you think i i could concur I, I would love to hear you expand more on it though well yeah i mean uh that natural bravery can also lead uh past that idea of stoicism lend itself too much to enthusiasm and become 
Lawful stupid? Lawful stupid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bravado, whatever, right. whatever you want to call it. And so checking that natural bravery, I think, is a, is a of course, it's a challenge for those who possess natural bravery. Not right. so much for the coward. They need to <laughs> you know, develop a backbone. But for those who come into this brave, you, you kind of have to hold yourself back, I would imagine. You, you, I mean, it's, it's, it, it comes with that ambition that Klauswitz was mentioning as well. Um, because there, there, I don't, I don't believe that you really, there is bravery, bravery without ambition, right? You know, there, there, there is a natural compulsion to do something that is just, something that is right, but you have to want to, right? And it has to exist inside of you, that ambition to do just, to do, to do rightness and, and just to, to try something new, even, even beyond any sort of moral compass to, to, to experience the bravery of going out and LARPing for the first time or going to the Warhammer game, you know? Sure. You need uh, you need the enthusiasm, the stoicism, and uh, everything else involved. Well, it all plays into it, and especially when you're first getting out there and and trying to make a name for yourself, or even just get the basics down for sure. Now, as as we go through this, of course, we want to play at a more and more competitive level. At least a lot of the folks listening to this show, and you and I, Absolutely. certainly, we're wanting to improve. And so, just coming to the field with enthusiasm and stoicism isn't enough anymore after a point there needs to be some sort of, of preparation Certainly. of the body and mind in order to properly attend to whatever war game that we find called to you personally how do you prepare your body and mind for the various war games you're involved in it it, uh, it depends on the day and depend, it depends on what i need genuinely and I, I would presume it is the same same for yourself mm -hmm. uh we, we are all human and again the enthusiasm and the stoicism you need less or more preparation depending on your mindset on the day um but for for my own personal preparations for my body i you know i try and make sure that i'm not treating my body poorly mm -hmm. in in a in a hedonistic fit if you will <laughs> um try try and maintain some semblance of uh, of self-control and and do things that are hard working out or mm -hmm. you know going for a jog or planking for a couple minutes something like that um and the mind, I find the mind much harder to train than the body hmm. because the body can be rote. The body can be a part of your day. Um, and certainly, there, there, I'm sure there are those who possess a wisdom uh, of introspection that I do not. And, and that sort of self-reflection comes as rote to them as hmm. the body does to me. But that is not I. <laughs> I do not have that level of uh, Zen mastery. Uh, and introspection's hard because you have to look at your flaws and you in order to prepare your mind if you're not trying to become better um then you're you're wasting preparation time mm. if you, if if you're not introspecting with the value with with looking at trimming the fat mm -hmm. uh getting rid of what doesn't need to be there what what doesn't help you then then introspection it's not you know it's it's not worthwhile and that's for me at least a very arduous task mm. so you find that introspection is it, it, even though it is something you do after a particular battle engagement uh, match, whatever have you, it still is something useful for preparing Absolute, for the next match. A hundred percent. And I think that, uh, I guess, and, and, and that is kind of a confirmation bias of mine. My preparation comes from experience. My preparation comes from, I like, I, you're, you're kind of spot on with the bravery thing. I'm kind of dumb. I'll go out <laughs> and I'll do something stupid. And then I'll reflect on that, you know, but, but you just got to go out and do the stupid thing at some point. Uh, and that's, that's where my learning comes mm -hmm. from is after I have, uh, 
lost in a certain way or fallen victim to, you know, the same shot three times in a row or something. And a lot of the difficulty in that comes from uh, admitting that defeat. Because there's a lot of ways you can justify, right? If you've lost a fight, it's like, oh, the sun was in my eyes. You know, I was my, my deodorant wasn't working, uh, and I think I think my my oven's on. So of course I'm gonna <laughs> get hit by that shot. Sure. Um, but if you if you just say no, I I I lost to this person three times in a row. There is a reason for it. Mm-hmm. What is it? That's it's a difficult thing to do to really get into acknowledging shortcomings, acknowledging losses. And I think that's that's how I prepare my mind going forward is by it's kind of a, a, a negative way to live your life in, in, in a sense, because you're focusing so much on your failures and not not observing victories. Um, my girlfriend gets mad at me sometimes, <laughs> but uh, but I, I find it I don't know. I find it direct. I haven't found a more elegant way around it to, to prepare myself to be better. No, and I mean, as a Catholic, I would fully agree with you as well. I... <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, like, in all seriousness, that's fan. It is a good, a good idea to make sure that we're looking back and considering, because as we were talking about, we get back up. Right. You know, this isn't a matter of, like, we die, oh no, it's over. You know, we can look back. We can reflect on what got us killed. And this actually brings me to uh, one of the next things that Klaus Witz was talking about, which is this idea of doubt, indecision, and regret. And what we're talking about, at least right for this specific part, is the idea of regret. Because looking back and analyzing what happened and looking at what went well, what didn't, if somebody killed you three times in a row, you know, what did they do to do that? How do we engage in this sort of introspection and not regret and therefore doubt our next actions? Because again, I think that those are kind of uh, reciprocal actions. You doubt or you regret something, which means you doubt your next action, which then leads to indecision. Absolutely. So at what point do we do we stop that cycle? It's a difficult thing to do, and it's it's why uh, the trope of the gamer rage is so uh, prolific in in uh, you know modern depictions of of any sort of gamer. Right? Mm-hmm. They, they 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 get lose and they turn in they, they get lose they lose, <laughs> they get mad and they turn into a giant baby. They throw a fit in, in, in media or something. We've all seen someone smashing their controllers on a stream or on a video or something like throw that. Throw their swords. Yeah. Exactly. And that comes from uh, you, you, that, that regret. It's like, oh, I didn't do the right thing. And you can become so focused on, instead of, instead of looking at something you have done improperly mm-hmm. and saying, my God, how could I have been so dumb as to do that improperly? You have to you have to see the future. You have to be able to move on and say, I have done this improperly, but now I can be more prepared next time I'm in this situation. Hmm. And it's it, like every loss, this is the it's it's the most hackneyed bit of sports advice in the world is that every loss is a learning opportunity. For sure. Um, but it really is. And because if someone beats you, they're you know, you can talk about the sun being in your eyes and your dog running away, or you can say, I did lose mm-hmm. and, and, and how do I how do I prevent this in the future? Sure, and that I, I know I, I've touched back on this first thing we were talking about several times, but that stoicism—that's mm-hmm. where that comes in, mm-hmm. because you can't—it's hard to be enthusiastic, <laughs> like oh, I, I lost today. Heck yes, you know, awesome you, sauce. No matter how uh, subsisting on a single bead of dew on a mountaintop, monk Zen you are, losing is frustrating. Mm-hmm. And even though they are, it is the best opportunity to lose less. Uh, it, it it still hurts. It still stings the ego. Right. And so being able to look past that regret and that doubt, mm-hmm. um, 
will is is the only way to to move forward and if if i may go off on a on a on a slight branch here oh, please do um in in a game that I, I don't know how often it's talked about on this podcast i haven't heard it too much but league of legends uh if a it's a it's, it's a five versus five team based map based game very objective controlled um and uh it, it's all about making the best decision at the best time and the thing about it is a mediocre decision made quickly will mm-hmm. always be better than the best decision made 10 seconds too late in that game. Sure, yeah. Because the best decision at 15 minutes and 30 seconds is not the same as the best decision at 17 minutes into mm. the game. And it depends on who's alive. It depends on who has the most power and gold, who you're scared of on the map, who you're not scared of, and how you can influence the map around those variables. Mm. And if you are doubting and hesitating and regretting, you know, uh, you think of a, uh, a call that you made last game similar to this one that went horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe your team took a couple seconds too late to get to the objective or maybe you were dawdling uh, and you lost it and maybe you lose the game because of it. Mm. You're going to feel burned. You're not going to want to make that decision again. But you have to take that information from last game and say, what, why did this seemingly good decision lead to our ruin? And how can we overcome that going forward? So if if you're if you're merely dwelling on the mistake, then you're not you're not advancing. You're you're sure. stagnating. So there's a difference between recognizing our mistakes and trying to learn from them and dwelling upon them eternally. Exactly, and and recognizing and acting upon. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's a uh, there's the you you, you uh, but either way you're confronted with them right mm. you can never run from your mistakes no. or or your bad beats i i still remember the exact combo i dropped to win a tournament in 2013 for street fighter 4 mm. i still remember it i still remember the exact sequence of events that happened i remember you know the entire set and there is nothing i will remember more about that set than the fact that it was grand finals, final game, final round. I had the game-winning combo, and I dropped it. And I lost $200 or something that day because I dropped that combo. Mm. And I could be mad about it. And to a degree, yes, Marty, if you're listening, I'm still mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if, if I don't go into training mode afterwards and work on that combo a hundred times, then what's why did i lose what what's the point of me playing again if i'm not going to try and avoid that in the future sure and so what what sounds like you're doing is that you're taking what you are have already identified as either you know bad ways of approaching the game or bad habits and you're breaking that to instead form good habits precisely and part of that good habit seems to be being able to engage in this introspection it is um and it's and I, I think habit is a great word for it i think you hit the nail on the head there um because it's something that must be it can't be done once right you 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 can do it once and you can improve and then never do it again but thinking back what was the point of doing it that one time you know if that's where you're going to stop if mm-hmm. you're going to, to to learn and then refuse to continue and that's that's a that's a very common thing i would say i'm very guilty of it in a lot of aspects Mm -hmm. um but to to think you have learned enough Mm. to lose to someone that you think is a a worse war gamer than you or a worse fighter than you and brush it off means that you have stopped learning Mm. and that i think is the antithesis of advancement 
So, I mean, it, it seems to me that forming good habits, while you're kind of going against friction while you're younger, uh, especially when your career is younger, it's it's kind of easier once you get going because there's so much new information coming at you. You got these folks with this style, you got these folks with this style, like all these other people who are better than you and who you can learn from. And that kind of continues, I think, for a certain amount of time. But one of the things I've seen a lot of vets do is after a certain point, that good habit goes away and suddenly they fall into a rut. You know, this, this is the way that I do things is the way I want to do things from now on. So, you know, obviously newer fighters and newer, newer, new, uh, newer war gamers need to definitely be into this. But how do our, us vets continue to keep that enthusiasm for what right. we're doing? Certainly. Um, I think it's recognizing plateaus. Hmm. It's recognizing when you've stopped. And uh, I, you know what, recently this year in Bellegarth, I think that I, I, I have recognized something that took me too long to recognize. And many of our viewers are familiar with Turkey Feathers, mm -hmm. TF. I'm brought up at, you know, quite a bit on this show as he is an excellent fighter. Um, and he'd been hitting me with a shot. And I'd never, I, I, I didn't really know what the shot was or how mechanically he was doing it. I knew it worked on me 80% of the goddamn time. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, I just, I brushed it off, right? And it's not that I think I'm a better fighter than TF. Losing to him, you know, it's, 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 it's pride, right? He's such a good fighter, right? And I, I want to be like, oh, but I, I want to be the best. And he beat, he chumps me 80% of the time these days. Sure. And if I don't, if I don't, lose the mindset that i have learned my whole style that i have learned everything that i'm not going to he's going to leave me in the dust mm -hmm. right it's all it's already looking that way but a couple a couple weekends back i went up to turkey feathers and i said how do you do that shot and that i, I like i when i asked him that question the first thought in my mind was when was the last time i asked someone that mm. when was the last time i didn't just assume i knew how that shot worked mechanically or what they did right 2017 2019 it, it's been a while and and to be fair you do learn skills you can you can you can visually learn from other fighters very well but this was one i didn't know and this is one that's been getting me quite a bit a quite a thorn in my side in, sure. in our in our duels um and i had never just put my ego aside and said how do you do that shot what's <laughs> happening here i still can't do it but but now i can start learning <laughs> and that that friction like you were saying it, it gets it's harder as you age it's harder as you've been doing it more because there's you have expectations for yourself mm -hmm. that you you might not need to ask someone i've been in this sport for 20 dang years i don't need to ask them how they throw a shot i can watch them three times and i'm i'm deadpool who, who has that about taskmaster there you go that's the one um no i'm not i need to ask sometimes because there's complex shots thrown by amazing fighters sure and there's new stuff coming out all the time too. Like I know with the, the extreme influx of like from Amp Guard and Darkon and those places, there's all sorts of styles and ways of approaching their games that you know we hadn't necessarily considered in ours. Certainly. And so they come over and they start throwing some of these weird Amp Guard shots. And yeah, I can sit here and be like, uh, Belagarth is so superior to Amp Guard. Bar, bar, bar. I like to do it. But if they're killing me with a shot, then my superiority is dumb. It's exactly. Dumb. Exactly. And it's holding, it's holding you back. It's holding me back. And, and, and that introspection saying this on a podcast, you know, it's tough to be like, oh yeah, I've, I've been getting beat a lot and I haven't tried to get better sure. until I, until I did. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, just, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to retain that friction or to overcome that friction rather. Right. As you have that long familiarity, mm -hmm. I would say. 
um, because it is, like you said, so easy for a vet to fall into a rut. It's a, it's a trap that comes when you think you know enough. So that long familiarity then is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it helps you deal with the danger aspect. You know, you're no longer phased at being on the battlefield or being at the match table or whatever. But in the same token, you somewhat become jaded. Absolutely. And and even even beyond jaded, I would say complacent you mm. can become. And I believe, I, I can't remember what the name of the job is. I think it's a, it's a type of lineman. And they work on... Uh, very tall electrical towers, thousands of feet, and they are not—they are ratcheted to the tower mm-hmm. by a couple of clips and and whatnot. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly everything going on uh, because I don't, but I know they can only work that job for X amount of months, or there, there's a set amount of time mm-hmm. that you can perform this work before you are not allowed to do it anymore. Huh. It is because people like people died doing this work and they noticed a pattern it was after this amount of time after this amount of excursions on 2000 foot tall then you know not actually that but light lighting uh uh electrical structures mm-hmm. people got complacent mm-hmm. and they they assumed they're like oh i i know and they they forget to do a little thing and then you know they paid a heck of a price for it right that's how people lose uh, fingers in wood shops a hundred percent a hundred percent and so even even in activities beyond gaming there are many real life repercussions for that level of uh complacency for that level of assuming you know enough so familiarity should not lead to complacency yes precisely and the very double-edged sword you are entirely correct because there are things that familiarity grants you that you do not have when you are a neophyte, when you are a rookie, um, but that you only get when you are a vet. You know, mm-hmm. whether whether it be uh, a slug of another guy's flask at an event you haven't seen for five years, or or, or something of the sort, um, or even just you know going to the elite fighters backdoor practice Ooh. that's happening in your city, and and there's everyone mad in a group chat about it somewhere. Uh, you know, that's that comes with that familiarity. I dig that. Yeah, and so overcoming these things, of course, the good habits help with all of that. And it it deals with all these other doubts and regrets. But then there's the petty frictions, as Clausewitz calls them. And this is something entire breed apart from these other frictions. Because these other ones are direct. You can see them coming. You can kind of interpret what they mean and make these corrections in in a broader scope and have them affected. But these petty frictions, how they build up. So for instance... I'm going to use a Chaos Wars that we were at because you kind of got boned in just about every way (laughs) of this Chaos Wars, if I recall correctly. There was like some sort of, like there was a food issue, like the kitchen that you were supposed to go to or the meal plan you were on got messed up. Your tent got rained out. Like I, there, I feel like my there was, wallet got stolen. Your wallet got like stolen. Yeah. yeah. So like any one of these things puts a damper on a person's event, but all these petty frictions adding up, like that's, that's quite the, uh, handicap that you're playing at and if i recall correctly you still managed to do pretty well at that event i i think that may have been the year i had more banner points than the urukai singular you you me. by yourself Totoville, yes yeah. <laughs> uh, more and not nightlife let me let me separate that let me let me give respect where respect is due they obviously i cannot host phallus's pub by myself <laughs> sure. um and they are going to cream me in in that sort of thing but i did have more 
fighting banner points than than the, the urukai and that's I, you know, that that's something that's a notch that's going to be on my wall until the day i die but, but that notch came at a, at a pretty high cost because again there were all these petty frictions happening in the background how did those not weigh you down how was your army of self still able to perform at its its maximum efficiency despite all of these things hindering you <laughs> i believe that it is because I am as petty as those frictions. <laughs> <laughs> I had to stick it to the goddamn universe. El elaborate, please. <laughs> oh, just, just you know, there, there's as you become frustrated, you know, it's 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 uh, it's uh, a pot filling with steam. Mm -hmm. It needs to have a valve. If it doesn't have a valve, bad things are going to happen. Mm. Whether you know, no matter how much you hold the pot or or, or what have you, the steam is going to escape. Uh, violently but if you can if you can manage it if you can find a way to uh to, to blow off that steam then it can it can be fuel it might not be the healthiest fuel for you uh but you can certainly turn that anger into enthusiasm mm -hmm. or even into stoicism to sustain you through through a period of, of hardship sure. there's a there's a term in in poker people who make a life of of, of playing poker uh, called writing the variance and this means that you need to have x amount of money in your bankroll to keep you through those really hard times when you just don't get cards right or when you get dealt pocket kings and the guy across from you gets dealt pocket aces mm -hmm. and you you know there's just nothing nothing you can do about it he's gonna take your money you can make all those right decisions it cannot go your way and you can lose thousands of dollars sure um and if you can't ride out the variance then you can't be a poker player if you cannot sustain through those points of of, of petty frictions and it's not it's not always one huge you know twenty five thousand dollar hand right sometimes you're playing you know two dollar bet poker over at your local casino and you've just lost 15 hands in a row mm -hmm. right and those are those petty frictions each one it's like oh my god of course he had jack king right there or some such um or he, he just got his card on the last card on the board, and I'm so upset, and these petty frictions will leave you to just get up and leave the table. Sure. You're done, right? Um, but if if you want to continue being a poker player, or if you want to continue playing war games, or, or being a soldier, those hard times, they they, they cannot be, uh, on, on a personal level, I, I guess I, I, I have taken this towards, they, they cannot be what stops you, but certainly at a, on the level of a, of a company, on the level of of many people these petty frictions there there you can't let off enough steam right something's going to come to a head and it must be addressed from the head down you know I, I think in some ways now that i think about it the hardships that you experienced at that particular event you being a singular member of your team uh, not a part of a larger unit or, or working with your realm as a whole you were working as a singular individual you overcoming those petty frictions was a matter of your own personal will, which is considerable. Oh, I appreciate that. But um, if, if it was a larger unit, is, is, is kind of what I'm driving at, let's say that it wasn't just you. Let's say that we're dealing with a, a larger unit and several of those people have had to do experience with the wet. Not all of them, but several of them either got their tents rained out or some water got in there or whatever have you. Right. Maybe not everybody lost their wallet, but they got a chair broken. Right. Or, just or enough. Just their, just enough. Or, you know, inter interpersonal things are going on. Somebody said such and such, or your girlfriend looked at you weird, or <laughs> whatever, whatever the things that like, get people on tilt. Um, you know, I would think, actually, that trying to get that machine 
back on track would almost be harder in a way. Absolutely. And so here's the other thing is that as a solo person, when I have these petty frictions, there's nowhere for them to go. Hmm. I can, I'm only going to hold as many petty frictions as can affect one man. And sometimes that can be hard, right? Hmm. No matter who you are. Um, but when you have 10 people, no one can hold the petty frictions of 10 other individuals. Sure. It's the, the, the straw is going to break the camel's back. And oftentimes, if one person in a company is in that sour mood, if something's happened, if, if, if I'm, let me backtrack, I'm sorry, if I'm by myself and I'm sour, I can go grab a drink and I can go sit in my tent for two hours and be a big pouty baby. And then I can come out refreshed and ready to see the world, right? Sure. But if I am camping with five people and I've been a big pouty baby for two days, it's going to affect them. Right. And they're going to have this petty friction against another person. And then this, you know, then maybe someone is on my side, like, oh, he had his wallet stolen. He's allowed to be pouty. And then there's friction between them. Mm. And that friction that was just me having a bad darn day has now spread throughout this whole company of 5, 10, 50, 100 people. And now 100 people are having a bad day. And that's a recipe for very unhappy people. It's a recipe for a machine that stops working. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. So, so in these larger units, there's there's got to be something holding people together. There's got to be some sort of cohesive glue that can overcome this this friction that becomes bigger and more compartmentalized the larger that the organization is. Whereas an individual such as yourself, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very admirable for you to be winning field fights because mathematically you should not be. <laughs> <laughs> but you are, and so, but not everyone. Like the, these are the, these are the high points of Totoville, but right. there's just as many times, if not more, that you, you you're by yourself, and so you're overwhelmed. Abs exactly. I don't have a support structure. Right. Um, and there there's there's it's a delicate balancing act having more than one person in an area for an extended amount of time. <laughs> sure. Whether you're moving in with your girlfriend, camping with a bunch of nerds for a week, or going to a wargaming convention at your local game store. You're going to be around other people. Their moods will affect you. Your mood will affect them. And you have to be cognizant of that. Hmm. And I have completely lost my own track of my own train of thought. I apologize. No, this is, this is perfect. We're dealing with petty frictions and we're dealing with overcoming it as an individual, as opposed to an organization. I think you're right on track. Exactly. Thank <laughs> you very much. Um. <laughs> now, the unfortunate thing is that now that we know that you're on track, we unfortunately have to end this section, which, oh. These always go by so quick when so, you're talking with somebody you like. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I, I thought it had been like 15 minutes, perhaps. I, I know, right? No, I, and, and this, again, every time I'm enjoying this, it just goes by way too quick. And I have this whole thing on theory versus reality and these other <laughs> qualities. But well, we have plenty of time. There's, there's a whole lot of time left, and I have no doubt you'll be on the show again. Excellent. I would love, I would love to be back, and I, I quite enjoy uh, waxing poetic with you, my friend. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, I enjoy having you on, sir. But for this time around, let us progress on to our next section where we're going to deal with the beginning of the First War of the Coalition. No, the War of the First Coalition. I know what I'm doing. At last, 
After so much framing, after looking at all, a lot of the contributing factors that went into the conflict, we have finally gotten to the war of the First Coalition. I know it's been a long road, and I appreciate you all bearing with me. I, I just love this stuff so much, and I'm excited to be able to, to get into it. But we're here to talk about war and war gaming, and now we are into the War of the First Coalition. Now, this kicked off because, of course, France was starting to become far more belladonic, right? There were more and more cries for war, more and more uh, hawks being elected and, and gaining a voice that was pushing the nation in the direction of open hostility with its neighbors. Europe was paying attention, by the way. It wasn't like they were just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, completely unaware of what was happening in France. At first, of course, it was like, oh, okay, you know, they've decided to take over more control of their government and their country. You know, they've, they've switched over to being a constitutional monarchy where you have a monarchy, but it was, is checked by some sort of parliament. You know, all right, this, this seems pretty tame. We're good with this. But as the mob becomes more and more volatile, and of course, the, the royal family is still there. They're not really prisoners at this point, except that they are prisoners. It's a weird situation. But because of all this, Europe begins to pay attention. And of course, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, the whole Holy Roman Empire, is really paying attention because Marie Antoinette is closely related to their royal family. So on the 27th of August in 1791, the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold II, who is the brother to Marie Antoinette, here on out we're just going to call him Leo. Okay, just for my sake. And King Frederick William III, now this was Frederick the Great's successor, and so I'm just going to call him not Frederick, okay? Because he's not Freddy the Great, the guy that, <laughs> as we discussed, I really, I really enjoy his tactics. But this is not Freddy. They just have made the Declaration of Pilmets which, among other things, threatened immediate military intervention if any harm were to befall the, the royal family of France. Basically checking and saying, look, if you aggress on anybody's borders, or if you are trying to, to cross borders to arrest formal noble, nobles who are going there to raise armies, or if you lay a hand on the royal family, there will be consequences. And that was heard loud and clear, and, and far from what they thought it was going to do, because again, these bigger empires were like, okay, we've, we've let them know, we warned them, everything's going to calm down, they're going to realize that they are hopeless in this conflict, so it's all good, we're going to move forward. But that next year, the 20th of April, 1792, the assembly declares war on everybody. Well, in this particular case against uh, Prussia and against the Habsburgs. But those are two of the largest organizations nearby. That's basically the entire east of where they are. And they had this false confidence. Remember that there were certain groups that believed that simply because their cause was righteous, simply because they had cast off the shackles of monarchy, that they would be superior in terms of military power. But this false confidence led, led to a stunning early defeat in the Austrian Netherlands. And then France was scrambling to make sure that it had the troops, had the generals, had everything it needed to actually defend itself. Uh, so in May 1792, these allies, Leo and, 
and not Freddy, hold some conferences to discuss general strategy, what kind of numbers and resources everybody's going to be bringing to the field, and the overall strategy they decide on is to focus on the fortresses. Remember before we were talking about how we go into a conflict, we either have the objective of conquering ground or of destroying our opponent's army, and usually one leads to the other. In this particular case, they knew that the fortresses were one of the really strong points of the defense. And so taking fortresses was a really, really good way to actually defeat the armies. So in July 1792, the Allied army is placed under the command of Charles William Ferdinand, the Duke of Brunswick, hence uh, hereafter referred to as Brunswick. Now this army was a coalition. And we've talked about with coalition forces, they have their own issues in terms of communication, in terms of drill, how things are done, uniforms. These are all usually issues. And so as a result, and because of the large baggage train that they needed for the style of warfare that we're coming into, the army was very slow. But it was operating with under 50% of the Austrian commitment. Around 50% of the numbers that, that uh, Leo promised were not there. Now this was not on purpose, let's say. It wasn't, it wasn't a matter of an intentional slight against Prussia. The Holy Roman Empire was having some issues. You know, they'd just gotten over some pretty costly wars, not the least of which was with, with the Turks. And they were kind of reeling. Also, their army was just getting hit by this, by a disease. It was a dysentery type disease that was just ravaging people. And so, yeah, there weren't a whole lot of Austrians coming over, and those that did come were pretty bedraggled. And we got these threats coming in, of course. And one of the things that Brunswick had said is that, you know, as he, as he was coming in, if any harm were to befall the royal family, he would be putting Paris to the sword. Basically burning Paris to the ground and, and just executing people wholesale because of this. And again, this was meant to deter the French, to, to kind of make them calm down, to make them second-guess what they were doing, but far from it, it, it uh, kind of whipped them up into a frenzy in a lot of ways. They were galvanized by this. And I mean, remember that at this time, it was pretty fractious within France. Even within the revolutionaries, there were a lot of different ideas on how to proceed forward. There were a lot of voices that were speaking out against each other, that word traitor being thrown around a lot. But everybody came together, much like in the Afghan-Soviet conflict, all these different parties came together because there was an exterior force that was threatening them. And of course, a lot of this was also either caused by or lead, led into this extreme paranoia that was happening. Remember that this was one of the most paranoid revolutions that has ever existed. They suspected traitors everywhere. And it was for good reason. There were traitors everywhere. There were all sorts of people who were working for the nobles on the other side. There were generals who either had sympathies or would defect later on. Uh, the, the queen herself, Marie Antoinette, she was in, engaging in traitorous correspondence across the borders. So this paranoia was well-founded. It just was all over the place, though. There was no way to confirm whether or not somebody was was good or a traitor or anything along those lines. So this paranoia didn't help, but it was kind of tamped down in a little bit of a way because of this exterior threat. So we have four French armies that are basically formed, and they are, are put up into this defensive cordon to try to block off the, uh, the Allied advance. There was a high turnover rate amongst these armies, by the way. It, it, during this particular 
time that we're talking about, the early part of the War of the First Coalition, and in terms of the entire conflict, there were generals being replaced constantly. And all of the generals involved were either eventually killed, imprisoned, or exiled. Remember, we haven't even gotten to the, to the, the really juicy bits of the French Revolution. We're just kind of building up to that. This, is, this, this war is a part of that, but, uh, but yeah, we're, we're, we're building up to the real drama within France. So on the 10th of August in 1792, in a kind of response to this aggression that they were experiencing, to this threat that they experienced, the exact opposite of what Brunswick wanted happened. Tullier was stormed. The guards were all killed. The royal family was taken captive, and I mean captive, captive. And the monarchy itself was suspended. So that backfired. <laughs> Pretty quickly after that, Paris became open to the enemy after the fall of the fortresses at Longwy and Verdun. This was kind of a weak point in the French lines where they were able to kind of slip through there. And this news reached uh, Paris on the 2nd of September, 1792. And this, this was not good for the morale of the city. They, had, they were already paranoid. They were already worried about the approach of this army. And now one of their greatest fortresses, Verdun, has fallen. And in relatively short order, the siege was not very long especially in terms of the way sieges acted in this particular time in history. The siege wasn't long at all. And so the people in Paris are just, again, whipped up to a frenzy. They're just, they're mad. And they're chaotic. And there's no real control. Nineteen priests who were imprisoned and were being transferred were seized, stabbed, hacked, and sawed to death. And this fate was the same for around a thousand prisoners who were killed over the next several days. Most of them were social offenders, like prostitutes or thieves or, or things like that who were considered by a lot of people to be the dregs of society. They were also easy targets. Nobody was standing up for these particular folks. There were a few nobles who were included in this, but it was mostly people who were not well thought of by society. In fact, one of the nobles was a, a friend, a close friend of Marie Antoinette, and she had her head cut off, and they kind of paraded it near the palace and said that she should kiss it. Yeah, this is a, this is a brutal time in history, folks. Um, so yeah, Paris is not happy. The, the, the people are freaked. They're absolutely freaked because here comes Brunswick, absolutely threatening violence upon the entire city. But as the Allies are coming in, they're given some options. They're, they've got a really good field position. The, the French armies that are extended out there are rather disorganized and away from where this action is taking place for the general, as a general rule. Um, they had a clear shot. Basically, where whatever they wanted to do and however they wanted to do it, they basically had the free reign to do so. And so their options were to link up with other armies, to with other sections of their own army, to engage the enemies, to, you know, go 2v1 on a particular enemy element, to seize more fortresses, which was kind of the original plan, right? Going in, seizing ground, occupying fortresses, and using them to put pressure upon the French, or just to march directly to on Paris. Do not pass go, do not collect 200 francs, straight to Paris. 
And Brunswick wanted to do one of the other ones, well, one of the first two. He wanted to either uh, link up with some other forces and make sure that the enemy's bite was taken away, or, like I said, seize these fortresses and, and put that static pressure. But not Frederick, not Freddy, insisted. He was along on this campaign, and he insisted that they march on Paris, kind of seek the quickest end to this conflict as possible. And Brunswick knew that was a bad idea, but he had to go along with it because the king was saying so. So as they're moving through, the French are slowly being expelled from critical positions in the Argonne Forest. Now, if you've never been to the Argonne Forest, at this particular time in history especially, it was a place of deadfalls, of marshlands, of just some rather extreme terrain to try to cross especially to, to keep hold of. But the French positions were too spread out. Too few men spread over too large of an area. And so Brunswick was able to methodically drive them back. And they retreat to the southern end of the forest. However, Brunswick does not press the attack. If he had done so here, he might have wholesale wiped out this particular force and moved on Paris without any sort of harassment. But he doesn't press this attack. What he wants to do is for, force the French from defensive positions. Again, he's, he's methodical. He's trying to cover all of his bases, play the laws of probability. And he wants to maneuver in such a way that the French do not have these defensive positions that they can work from. But once again, not Freddy intervenes and says, no, we need to move directly on Paris. He had access to some intelligence. I'm going to make quotation marks, intelligence that suggested a full French retreat was taking place. And so he wanted to move and cut them off and destroy them while they were on their way to Paris so that they could march in triumphant. Now this intelligence proved to be false. Remember in the first section we had talked about truth being the first casualty of war. And even when we do have reports, they're not always entirely accurate. Brunswick, as a experienced commander as an experienced field marshal he he kind of knew this he had a he had uh, feelings <laughs> he had feelings about this again his laws of probability thought that this was a bad idea he knew coming into this that it wasn't the best course of action but when the king overrules you what are you supposed to do so they start moving toward the the area that they think is going to cut the french off and when they're doing so, they're doing so under terrible weather and with this dysentery kind of going through their ranks. And they've been moving at a, a rather brisk pace, even for this large of an army that's moving relatively slow. So you've got fatigue, you've got folks who have just come in from the Argonne Forest. So that's, that was not a pleasant place to have to march through. The army, morale-wise, wasn't doing that great because of all these, these petty frictions that have built up. Then, on the 20th of September, they come under fire as they're moving out of one of their camps to go down the road toward Paris, toward this route that they're hoping for. They walk directly into a trap. And so kicks off the Battle of Valmy. And this was between, of course, France, and you had Dumouriez, who was the overall commander. He was the one who was uh, kind of in charge as they were being pushed back out of the Argonne. And you had Kellerman, who had also linked up at this point. And they were against the Allied forces, which of course were the, the Holy Roman Empire, not Freddy, and Brunswick, 
Brunswick, who of course was in charge of the field action. They were relatively evenly matched at this point. The French had about 36,000 troops on this particular field, and the Allies had 34,000. Now, both armies were, in total, considerably bigger. The French reinforcements that were in the countryside, the various armies broken up, were much larger than 36,000. And same thing with the Allies. There were a couple of different groups that were moving through. The army had been split into a couple of prongs. And so they had more than just this 34,000 as well. And in terms of losses, this battle wasn't all that bad. There were around 300, only 300 losses for France, and around 200 losses for the Allies. So this wasn't a very bloody battle, but it was very influential. So let's get into it. The French, under Kellerman, had taken this, uh, this area called Mount Huron? Huron? Sorry, my French listeners. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Y-R-O-N. And it was really more of a hill, especially uh, by the perspective that I have coming from Montana with our mountains. This was more of a hill. But it was elevated, and they'd formed a semicircle able to kind of get a kill zone on the Prussians, um, on the Allies, keep their head down. And so the fire is pretty inaccurate. Remember, it's the, the weather is bad. It's very hazy, a lot of fog everywhere. And so this inaccurate fire from the French allows the Allies to set up their artillery. And so you get this nice little artillery battle that starts to go on. The fog clears. And honestly, Brunswick was not expecting much. Remember, the rumors of the French army were that it was not that great and that it, the morale was low and they were just sort of a rabble, right? They had expected to march on Paris and encounter basically a peasant army for all intents and purposes. But what they see when this fog clears is not a rabble, but a well-disciplined and well-armed force. Now, in the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about how this particular new shiny French army came to be. However, for our purposes here, it was there. And it was unexpected. And so this causes a uncustomary hesitation from Not Freddy. He's normally been much more aggressive. He knows he's got a pretty decent army. He knows how to use it. He's been using these, these diplomatic networking influences to, to advance his cause. He's normally a very aggressive person on the field. But here he, he, uh, he stutters. And for a decent amount of time, nothing really gets done outside of this artillery barrage. Now, either he hesitated out of fear, out of, of something like that, or he just did not care. He didn't think it was that big of a deal. But eventually, you have the infantry massed for a frontal attack. The glorious Allied army moving forward to just smack the French off of that hill. But after 200 paces, that's not very far, Brunswick orders a halt and turns them back around. This glorious frontal attack that was about to take place, and then it's over. There's a couple of different reasons why historians think that this may have occurred. The first one is that the French morale was considerably better than they thought. Remember that they thought that this was a, a state teetery on the brink, that the French government was ruled by a few radicals, and that the majority of the French people weren't really behind these reforms. But the reality in front of them was a France that was heavily motivated, of extremely high morale, 
and we're not we're not uh, afraid but instead we're ravenous in the face of this battle uh their general kellerman is reported to have stuck his hat on top of a sword and led the cry of vive la nation one of the first times a cry like that has been heard on a battlefield and it was taken up by the entire army of an entire army worth of people screaming vive la nation and other things along those lines just super stoked to be there and that's intimidating to march against especially when your own forces have become so bedraggled when their morale is so low that is a huge probability gap another reason might be the continuing artillery that was a long march there was a whole lot of field between the allied lines and the french lines all across open terrain with artillery raining down and at range artillery may not be especially at this time might not have been that accurate the closer you get the better aim <laughs> that artillerymen tend to have go figure and so because there were so many pieces up there that also could have played a factor into brunswick's decision and of course there's the idea of you're going against well-disciplined well-armed soldiers and you're trying to go uphill this means that you are in prime danger zone for a bayonet charge a downhill bayonet charge no less i mean it's it's hard enough when two groups come together and try to fight that that little scuff of attrition but when somebody's running downhill when you've got one team that has a clear advantage in that way it's not appetizing to march against so whether it was one of these reasons or maybe even all three of these reasons or ones that we don't even know about brunswick calls off this this frontal assault and this duel of artillery resumes this firing back and forth between the two positions and that decisive moment was lost the moment when the allies really could have stuck it to them really damaged the french army they had lost the moment and this led to even better morale amongst the french soldiers this was better than they could have hoped they thought that the army advancing on them was going to just be god level they were going into this with a fairly decent expectation of it not going well but in the same mind knowing that they had to fight and that they were out there proud of what they had achieved and what their country was and so they was even better they were just stoked so the battle ends in a stalemate and both sides eventually quit the field now i was reading a couple of different sources on this battle and they couldn't seem to agree on who left first whether it was the french or the prussians but whoever left first it doesn't really matter because the french walked away emboldened they had just fought an allied force a combination of two of their enemies armies and not necessarily one but they weren't defeated they made them quit the field without a whole lot of losses and that was a huge boon not just to the french army but to the french nation to know that they could achieve at least that much that they were able to hold their own against somebody like brunswick a very experienced commander and in the aftermath of course the poor morale that had already been in the allied ranks just got worse and without really needing to again this was a fairly large fairly large army but they kind of hightailed it out of the area because the will was broken they had seen a whole new france they had seen a army that they were absolutely not expecting and weren't prepared to deal with really and so this this little battle that 
had hardly any casualties. We're talking around 500 casualties between both sides. It saved the French Republic. Because this would have been a real quick conflict. If the Allies had gotten through this particular conflict and had marched on Paris, that would have been it. You would have had the restoration of some sort of aristocracy. You definitely would have had some sort of violent subjugation of the population. And in short, the French Republic would have been destroyed, almost certainly. But this little battle stops that from happening. It also condemns the royal family to death because they were already on thin ice before they had been taken captive on the 10th of August. They were already not doing well. And so when this force came in and lost, it, it, it meant that they were going to die. It was one of the consequences. If, again, Brunswick had taken the city, he could have liberated the French nobility, and everything would have been made right within France. But it wasn't. But we'll get to that. That comes later. A lot of these issues stemmed from the fact that the Allies had false information on the morale of the French. Their spies, their scouts had, had said that, of course, the French were not behind this. Their, the fight was out of them. They were disorganized. They were more into fighting each other than they were, they were to fight anybody else. And this information, while accurate in some way, was wrong to the point of a loss on the field. Once again, information proving to be unreliable. And on the French side, one of the big contributing factors toward their victory was the knowledge that their very existence was at risk, that the existence of the government that they had put into place was at risk, that the city, the very center of their country, was at risk. They had been threatened to be burned. They had been threatened to be put to the sword. They took that seriously. You know, Brunswick comes in and he's waving that saber around saying, we're coming for you. We're going we're gonna to put Paris to the sword. They, they believed that. But instead of scaring them, it made them motivated. So, uh, going back to Sun Tzu, he talked about you always need to leave your opponent a way out. You always need to provide them with some glimmer of hope. Because a desperate opponent is a, is a, a very dangerous opponent. And in this case, they weren't provided a way out. There were threats, there were ultimatums made, but they weren't necessarily given a way out. And so they fought like a desperate army. And that sort of motivation, you can't buy. You can't wrap that, you can't package it, you can't send it. That motivation comes from an existential crisis. Comes from actual threat, from actual danger being there. How many of us... Physical war gamers have been in a situation where we know we're going to lose. And that makes us fight so much harder. And sometimes we win because of that. Sometimes because of that burst of energy, that burst of aggression, it leads us to victory. There's that cornered tiger issue. And so here we see the French proving themselves to be more than just a rebellious rabble who have raised up with their pitchforks and dream of a, of a country that cannot be. Now, we, we see an organized, well-disciplined fighting force that, was ma that managed to fight off one of the greatest coalitions that's ever existed was this, this little army. They're going to be back, by the way. This <laughs> conflict does drag on. We're going to have plenty to talk about here in the next several weeks on this particular conflict. But this little battle was significant. 
it maybe was significant to world history. Because, and I mean, that is another part of this is because this short conflict then became a long war and what could be considered a world war. It was fought on a couple of different continents and there were like, especially all of Europe was in flames because of this. So this battle of Volney, this, this little battle on the 20th September, 1792, would be influential enough to change the political landscape of all of Europe forever. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.